invite you to turn with me in your Bible to the ninth Psalm, Psalm chapter 9. If you don't have a copy of the Bible with you, there's one under a chair close by. We're on page 451 in the chair Bible. And uh, I want to invite you that if uh, you don't have a copy of the Bible, you're welcome to take that with you. And we'll gladly replace it and put another one uh, there in its place that's for you to have and to keep if you'd like to have it. So we continue in our study of the Psalms. I'm grateful to Pastor Ben for preaching uh, last week as I was away on vacation from Psalm 8. And we continue and pick up in the ninth Psalm. I'm going to handle Psalm 9 a little differently. We're going to read only the first two verses, and then we're going to see how these first two verses play out in the rest of the Psalm. So Psalm 9, verses 1 and 2 is our text. I invite you, if you would, to stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Let's pray. Lord, I come now before you on behalf of the people gathered here. And I plead that together that we will give thanks to you with our whole hearts. Whether up to this point we have engaged our hearts in the thoughts of worship, that we will together worship you through the preaching of your word. That as your word is expounded, I pray that we will recount all your wonderful deeds and that that will lead to gladness and rejoicing. And that that rejoicing would be in you. And as we come to a conclusion of this sermon, of this service. I pray that we will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Lead us to rightly understand your word. We plead and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. The main idea of this text is that the gracious works of the Lord result in the specific giving of thanks. And I wish I'd have added this phrase, in the face of difficulty. So the gracious works of the Lord result in the specific giving of thanks in the face of difficulty. You see, Psalm 9 declares joyful thanksgiving and faith in the Lord God as it relates to the here and now and into the future. Many think that Psalm 9 and 10, many scholars believe that Psalm 9 and 10 are actually one psalm because those who later put in chapters and verses, we're going to stick with the way it's divided in our English Bible. But here's what's basically happening in these two Psalms. David is recounting what has happened in his life and in the kingdom of Israel, and he's looking forward to what he anticipates is going to happen. And he's saying that, that everything is headed to the same place. And all of this under the sovereignty of God. So all that God has done and all that God is going to do because he is the Lord, it should result in the giving of thanks. So in the face of difficulty, David makes four declarations and then fleshes out how these declarations work in his heart and life throughout the psalm. The first declaration. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. Spurgeon rightly said, the heart 
is the instrument of praise. So when we come before the Lord, we are to come giving thanks. But we don't just give thanks because we're told to. All of us, likely, we're told by our parents, say thank you. That's not a bad thing to teach a child to do, is to say thank you, because what you're hoping for is the day when gratitude connects with what they say. That they are both grateful and they express their gratitude. So the intent here is that from the heart, not just part of it, from the whole heart, we give thanks to the Lord. And Matthew chapter 15, Jesus is quoting here from Isaiah. He says, the people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Folks, this is a sobering thought here. There are some in this room who have vainly worshiped God this morning. You sang, you sang some of you the right notes. I didn't. If you're ever waiting in the lobby and they leave my mic on, please yell for somebody to turn it down. It's awful. I always know every Sunday when it happens and I walk out and people are going, I don't sing because I sing well, trust me. But the quality of our singing is not what God is after. What God is concerned with is our heart, that we engage our heart. Now, why is this necessary? Why must we give thanks with our whole heart? Here's the answer, don't miss this. Because he is the Lord. Psalm 9, verse 7. The Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. Now, I just need to pause here and help us in 2018 make sense of what the Bible's saying here. Because here's how you motivate moderns to think about God. You emphasize a truth, but this is the only one you emphasize, that God is love. Seldom do you find people thinking about and pondering the fact that God is enthroned forever. That means that the eternity of God's divine sovereignty leads to our comfort and to our giving of thanks. Or let me say it another way. Our faith rests on the fact that the Lord God rules and reigns. I'll say it another way. If our faith does not rest on the fact that the Lord God rules and reigns, then our faith is in vain. This is the argument of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
The fact that God rules and reigns, the proof of that lies in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if there is no resurrection, Jesus is not Lord. And if there is no resurrection, our faith is in vain. Our faith rests in the fact that our God sits enthroned forever. So unbelief is either the result of ignorance that we don't know these things or it is the result of rejection that we reject God as faithful that we reject God as just and sovereign it is the fact that God is faithful just and sovereign that led David to write in the eighth psalm O Lord our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You're above everyone else and everything else. Do you understand that it is by his grace that God has made himself known to you? Now think this thought with me. This God who is enthroned on high could have never told you who he was until you came to your death and then you could have stood before him. That would have been a horrible thing. But God by his grace has made himself known to humanity. He has made himself known to us and the knowledge of who he is and that he has made himself known allows us with thanksgiving to give thanks to the Lord who is God. Now we press further. He says next, I will recount all your wonderful deeds. Some of the old translations translate this word wonderful, the phrase wonderful deeds as miracles. You know, first of all, in the Hebrew, it's wonderful deeds. But I'm glad they didn't use the word miracles in the ESV because in the modern mind, the word miracle is very limited. It means when you suspend the laws of nature. Now, I firmly believe and that the Bible teaches that God has suspended the laws of nature. Again, I go back to the resurrection. If God did not suspend the law of nature, our faith is in vain. But God has done more than suspend the law of nature to enact wonderful deeds in the lives of his people. So what the psalm is calling us to is not just to give thanks to the Lord and to recount the major things, though we do. That's why every Sunday here, we recount the major thing, the cross and the resurrection. But we also remember the smaller things, the individual things that God has done. Now, David presses in in the midst of his difficulty on some of the things he's seen God do in the past and some of the things he expects to see God do in the future. Watch how these kind of parallel. When my enemies turn back, verse three, and they stumble and perish before your presence, you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. So God's judgment was evident that God turned his enemies back. In verse 13 now, he's speaking to the future as he finds himself again in a bad place. And he says, be gracious to me, O God. In other words, David's saying, I don't deserve this. Be gracious to me, O God. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises 
that in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. So here's what he's saying. God, again, be gracious and set me free. So when I return to Zion, to God's holy city, I will publicly recount what you have done. I will publicly praise you. Verse five, you have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. Verse 15, the nations have sunk in the pit that they made, in the net that they hid. Their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the hand, in the work of their own hands. Now, some of these difficult parts of the Old Testament that you come to is moments when God enacts his, just, his justice against those who were injustly or unjustly treating his people. But the greatest moment of justice, the greatest moment when God arose and sunk the nations down is the moment of Christ Jesus upon the cross. It's described in Colossians chapter two this way. Verse 13, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing to the cross. So God didn't just say, I'm gonna forget it. God said, I'm gonna deal with it. And he dealt with it on the cross through his son, Jesus Christ, who died in our place for our sin. Now in that moment on the cross, verse 15, it says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Satan and all of his minions and every human being that was involved at that moment to try to rid the world of Christ fell into their own pit. That what looked like they had succeeded, that ultimately Christ succeeded, and we know that is true through the power of the resurrection. Now, brothers and sisters, here's what we must realize. As David in this account talks about how God has personally dealt with him as king and how God has dealt with Israel, his people, we've got to realize that our stories are the same, that God has dealt with us, that we were dead in trespasses and in our sin, and God has made us alive, that God has changed our story from a story of death to a story of life, that Christ has redeemed us. But Christianity is not just about my testimony. It's not just about my story. Here's what I realize is what David realizes. I'm a part of a bigger story. God's son, something much bigger than me. God is doing the work of redemption in the world and he's bringing all things to one moment when Christ comes and judges the world. So brothers and sisters, we, we don't overlook God's every work of preserving us, of God's work of forgiving us, of converting us, of delivering us from sin, his ongoing sanctifying work that he brings about in us. And we must realize this, that even when we're in heaven, God's loving kindness will continue to surprise us. We're never gonna get over it. 
It's, it's never going to grow old to us. Forever and ever, we will recount all of his wondrous deeds. A group of the seniors, I was around a few days ago and they were recounting their childhood and their high school days. Wednesday night, they were all gathered together remembering some of those things. It's good to remember, isn't it? good to think about listen to me both the seen and the unseen for all of eternity we will recount the wondrous deeds of God and it will never ever grow old you know why because the third thing results that we will be glad and exult in you exult's not a word you often use means rejoice that you will be glad and rejoice the tense of the verbiage is ongoing in the Hebrew that this is an ongoing action it's unfolding in our life it's not just something we've done or we might do it's something we're doing that we're glad and we exult and we exult in you so the object of our joy is the Lord so the object of our joy is not the abundance of wealth or power or pleasure. It's not that other people would praise us. Our gladness and joy is in God our Savior. Now, you could shrug at what I just said. I just want to press in and ask some questions given the course of this week. If money and power and fame are going to give you everything you want, why do famous, powerful people continue to commit suicide? If you haven't read it, you need to read Kirsten Powers' article that, that uh, she wrote this week. I don't remember what outlet it was right now. But how she talked about her own struggle and the struggle of the famous people around her. You see, brothers and sisters, when you look for something or someone to give you lasting joy, that person or that thing has become an idol. That's all it is. And it will run out. Now, I, I'm, I'm, I am not denying for a while it might thrill you. For a while you might enjoy it but it will run out. The only source of lasting joy is the Lord. So let me be clear. I'm not saying here, nor is the Bible in any way teaching that believers do not face hardship. This psalm is written in the context of hardship, difficulty. What this psalm reveals is that those who trust in the Lord respond differently in the face of hardship. Since I started preaching in the psalms, and I don't say what I'm about to say lightly and I'm not trying to win your sympathy in what I'm gonna say. Since I started preaching through the Psalms, this has been one of the hardest periods of ministry 
that I have ever faced as a pastor. Now let's make sure we don't go to a bad place in what the pastor just said. To where you get some whack theology in your mind and go, well, that's just bad karma. You should have never started preaching the Psalms. You know what that reveals? That reveals, if that's the thought that flew into your head, and it flew into some of your heads. If I'd have just stayed away from the Psalms, we wouldn't have had these bad times. That proves to you that you have a misunderstanding of who God is. Here's what I believe. Last fall, when I was on my face before the Lord pleading with him with what he would have us to learn and to preach next, he led me clearly to the Psalms because our sovereign God knew what was going to transpire in the life of this church. He knew what was going to unfold in some of your individual lives. He knew what was going to unfold in our lives together. God knew what we needed. Psalm 9, verse 9. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. If you don't have that underlined, circled, highlighted in your Bible, I hope you will right now. And those who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. I don't see, I'm, you may be here, but so Hubbard's, Larry, John, if y'all are here, I tread lightly on what I'm going to say. For the last 11 weeks, we have watched our sister, Kathy Hubbard, rely on the stronghold who is Christ. Then Friday, I watched her family her husband of 26 years trusts the Lord as she slipped, slipped into the presence of Jesus. I watched God be the stronghold. I stood at the side of many instances like this in the life of this church. And I have watched believing family after believing family say with Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, for I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard into that day what he has entrusted to me. So brothers and sisters, it's really quite unexplainable it is the evidence of his grace and the work of God and the knowledge of who he is that in the midst of difficulty, God gives gladness and joy to his people. That with tears, they weep. So the message I sent to the pastors Friday afternoon is, Kathy's going to be with Jesus, sorrowful yet rejoicing. That's who we are in Christ. That by his grace, we know he keeps us. So we rejoice. 
And what does that rejoicing look like? It's the fourth declaration. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Well, I don't really feel like it. You think that's the con? You think David felt like it right here? You think when you're reading around the song, he's going, man, I feel great. How you doing today, David? Great. This man's being oppressed. And he says, I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Verse 11, he reveals it a little further. Watch what he does. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Verse 17. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. Now listen to me. I say this with all of the compassion and love in my heart, what our culture needs is a healthy sense of who God is. They don't need us to rail and to yell at them. What they need is a people who will sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. That means we are acknowledging that God is holy and he is mighty and he sits on his throne and we're to tell of him among the peoples. Because here's what we know. That this just God must act with justice. He must. And when he returns, he will enact on the nations who forget him. He will make right the way his people have been treated wrong. He will look after the poor and the needy. So we say with Psalm 19, Arise, O Lord, and do not let man prevail. Put them in fear. Let the nations know they are but men. We must remember that until Christ comes, we are surrounded by but men. We must understand that human defiance of God requires God's just response to those men but they are but men. In just a few weeks, the anniversary of Gettysburg will roll around. I don't know what you know about the Civil War, if you've ever studied or thought about it, but the pivotal battle of the Civil War was Gettysburg. On the first day the South was prevailing, had the South won at Gettysburg, you'd be living in an entirely different country today. The Northern Union soldiers were spread out in multiple locations and they began to muster toward Gettysburg and made their way in through the town to the south of the town. One of the last houses they had to pass before they reached the foray of the battle that first day was a little old lady's house and she was standing out on the front porch. Just down the road, you could hear the rebel yell. These young soldiers that were passing by in these battalions had never heard it. They'd heard of it, but they'd never heard it. And as you could hear men screaming and wailing and bullets flying and the the rebels yelling, their eyes and faces showed fear. So this little old lady stood out on her porch 
And every group that would get an earshot, this is what she'd say. Never mind, boys. They're nothing but men. Never mind, boys. They're nothing but men. So I say to you, whatever hardship you're facing at work or home or in the context of your family, regardless of what happens culturally, what you saw this week, a man getting fired for saying something about his faith from CrossFit, those days are gonna ramp up in the days to come, friends. You remember this, they're nothing but men. Who we serve is a living God. This living God is whom we will ultimately answer to. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Let me just pause right there. Here's the image I want to have in your mind. Volcanoes exploding. I I think it's Guatemala. There's so much happening this week. I apologize if I'm getting this wrong. It's exploding and there's a video of a family in a car trying to speed away from the ash that's being recorded and you can hear the little girl in the back seat wailing. An unavoidable shaking is coming. It's coming. Now look at what verse 28 says. Therefore, let us be grateful. Why? For receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Now, how do you keep from being consumed by the fire? You're going to have to be covered by something that protects you. And the answer to that protection is in verse 24. That is the blood of Jesus Christ. It is through Christ and Christ alone that we come into the presence of God who is a consuming fire and gratefully worship him and acknowledge him in praise and honor. So I ask you this question. Has the gracious work of the Lord resulted in the specific giving of thanks with my whole heart? As I've tried to help you see, Psalm 9 ultimately points to a triumphal redeemer who is Christ, to whom we say, arise, O Lord, that his gracious work has prepared us and is preparing us for the day of his coming and for all of eternity. So I plead with you and ask, have you bowed your knees and received his gracious gift of salvation for your sinful soul? 
Are you ready and are you longing for the coming of Christ with a thankful heart? Will you wholeheartedly amen when he breaks the sky? It's coming. Our faith is not fairy tales. Our faith is built on the revelation of God and the facts that are recorded in the scripture and some of these facts are yet to be. In Revelation, it unfolds what is yet to be, that Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will well on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. And notice that last phrase, the Almighty the Most High, the Lord. Revelation 22. This is the, the brackets on the end of Revelation. It starts this way and it ends this way. Listen to the redundant language. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city by the gates outside of the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the worst, the thirsty come and let the one who desires to take of the water of life, come. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away the words of the books of the prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree of life in the holy city, which are described in this book. Now I wasn't being dramatic Friday afternoon when I went in to see Kathy for the last time. I leaned over her bed and I said what I've said many times when I have been present at the last moments of someone's life. I read Revelation 22 and here's what I said. Kathy, you're about to pick from the tree and you're about to eat from what you've been barred from. You say, what do you mean? Go back to Genesis. Don't look. What were we cut off from in the garden? The tree of life. Kathy Hubbard will not suffer with her heart ever again. She will never die again. And all who are in Christ will eat of this tree and will live forever and forever in the presence of God. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. To which John replies, amen. Come Lord Jesus. So until he comes, this is how the Bible ends, friend. 
the grace of God be with you all. Do you understand that's the only hope you have? The grace of God be with you all. Apart from what you have not earned and what you have not deserved, you're hopeless. But through Christ's gracious gift of salvation, we have great hope that we will see him and we will stand before him clothed in his righteousness. So I say to you, my brothers and sisters, let us praise the Lord together. Let's pray. Lord, as I bow in prayer, I, I am aware that there are those who are unbelieving in this room, maybe even scoffing at what is said. Holy Spirit, would you open their eyes to the truth of your word, I pray, that you would bring about repentance, acknowledgement of their sin, and the acknowledgement that salvation is through Christ alone. And Lord, I plead on behalf of the men and women in this room who have been saved by your grace, that now together we would give one another a little glimpse of what it's going to be. When we gather together around the throne of God and with all of our fullness, we give thanks with all of our heart. When over and over again for all of eternity, we recount your wonderful deeds and amen every one of them. When the fullness of gladness we rejoice in you and we sing our praise to the most high God. Work among us now, we plead and pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Let's stand and worship the most high.